It is so good to be here with you guys this morning. This isn't my first time to adventure. Uh, my kids and I have come here uh, on occasion, and as Brad said, I've gotten to spend a lot of time with uh, some of your leaders over the past several months, and uh, they are the real deal. Uh, you probably know that, but it is so rare to have such a committed core group of leaders committed uh, to uh, reaching lost and broken people, and uh, you guys have that here at Adventure. And it's just so neat, uh, so neat to see that. Uh, Brad and I have known each other for over 25 years, uh, believe it or not. Uh, he kind of has watched me grow up. We went to the same school, and um, uh, Brad is, uh, as he said a second ago, uh, just, just an encourager to me uh, as well. Uh, about two years ago, I went through a pretty painful divorce, and uh, I've had some pretty dark, hopeless moments, but Brad has been there uh, for me every step of the way, and uh, every pastor needs a pastor. Brad has been uh, my pastor for the past two years, and uh, he, he's also an incredible, uh, he's an incredible leader as well. Um, he is so committed to the fact that the church should always be a place where lost and broken people can uh, come and be welcomed, and, uh, and you may not know that, but Brad has a really tough job, okay? He, he does. I, I remember several years ago, I had just transitioned into the role of senior pastor at the church where I was serving at the time, and it was about a couple weeks in when I received this really interesting uh, comment on the prayer card uh, from the weekend. Now, understand that whenever I preached, I always wore what I'm wearing today, jeans, a button-down shirt, and uh, apparently this lady really didn't like it. It it really offended her uh, by the way that, that I dressed. And so on the prayer card, she wrote, please pray for our pastor, okay? Please pray for our pastor. He doesn't know how to dress. Rather than looking like a real pastor wearing a suit and tie, he looks like some slob walking into Walmart. Now, I took no offense to that whatsoever because I love Walmart. And so I responded, I said, you know, thanks for the feedback, we'll, we'll talk about it later, Mom. And uh, that's not really true, but um, pastors are on the front lines combating brokenness, and so you just don't know what they're dealing with. So be praying for Brad and Christy, Matt and Morgan and your elders, uh, because uh, they believe that this is a place where lost and broken people are going to find hope and healing in Jesus and Jesus alone. And I believe, okay, that the best days, the best days of Adventure Christian Church are still before you guys. And uh, I know that beyond the shadow of a fact. Uh, today, we're, we're going to keep going in this series that Brad kicked off a couple weeks ago in the book of James. And so if you have your Bibles or Bible app, uh, go ahead and pull those out. Um, and if you haven't been here, let me just give you a brief uh, recap to help bring some context to this series. Okay, th this book was written by a guy named James. All right, very good. Uh, now, the thing about this guy is that he wasn't always a follower of Jesus. At one point in his life, he was pretty skeptical. In today's terminology, we might refer to him as an agnostic, okay? So he was maybe a little bit spiritual, but he didn't always buy into this whole Jesus thing. Now, one other small detail, okay, about James is that he happened to be the half-brother of Jesus. And you see, it's for this reason and this reason alone that James is perhaps the best shred of evidence that we have that Jesus really was the Son of God. Why is that? 
Well, Brad said it a couple weeks ago. What would it take for your brother to convince you that he was God? (laughs) All right, predicting his death and resurrection, being put to death, being murdered, and then crashing his funeral, coming back to life, that just might might do it. That just might convince you that he really is who, who he says he is. And so the entire point of this book is to convey to some first century Christians that that Jesus changes everything. He changes everything in our life. He changes the way that you see other people. He changes the way that we view bank statements. He changes the way you view the bedroom, marriage, your career, the way you raise children. Okay, there's no part of your life that Jesus doesn't step in and say, hey, there's a better way to do this. There's a better way to do this. That's the entire angle of this book. And so if you have your Bibles or Bible app, uh, go ahead and jump to James chapter 2. We're going to pick up uh, in verse 1. We're going to walk through several verses in chapter 2 today. Here's what, here's what James continues to write to some uh, first century Christians. He says this. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Okay, you might want to underline that word partiality and that word hold. I don't want us to skip over the significance of that word hold, okay? In the original Greek language, that word literally means to, to own or to possess. It, it conveys this uh, meaning of to, to cover yourself or to clothe yourself. All right, so the point that, that James is making here is that faith isn't something that you just passively manage. Faith isn't something that you only engage with when you need it. No, it's much more than that. Walking with Jesus is this ongoing possession that you learn to embrace and that you learn to engage with every single day of your, of your life. And if we're not careful, we can easily equate faith with what some might call easy beliefism. And so James makes the point that a byproduct of owning your faith is seeing all people the same. All right, with Jesus, in other words, there's no room for favoritism. With Jesus, there's no room for looking down on others. With Jesus, there's no room for, for racism. We're all equal. There's no such thing as one person being more valuable or more broken than another person. We're all the same. You see, grace, grace is what cancels favoritism. Grace unravels partiality. Author uh, Tim Keller, I love it how he says, He writes in one of his books, he says, the cross of Jesus, the cross of Jesus tells us that you are more sinful than you thought you were, yet you are more loved than you ever dreamed to be. And that's true no matter what your past looks like. And so James is in essence saying that, hey, the grace we received is the grace that we're actually called to to give other people, especially those that we don't think deserve it. Nothing reveals our lack of understanding the gospel than the way that we treat other people who are different from us or maybe disagree with us. All right, you drive a Ford F-250, then some guy in a Prius cuts you off. How do you respond? All right, for the past month, you've had signs in your yard promoting one candidate, and then a neighbor puts up signs in their yard promoting their opponent. Do you view them a little bit differently? How do you look down on them? You cheer for the Cardinals, but then your coworker who cheers for the Cats looks over at you and gives you a big toothless smile. How do you, tr- how do you treat them? How do you, how do you treat them? 
You see, there's no insignificant person in the kingdom of God, which means there's no place for discrimination among God's, among God's people. Take a look at uh, verse 2. James gives us some examples of favoritism. He says, for if, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? All right, back in the first century world, a, a gold ring was kind of like a status symbol. It signified wealth and prominence and, and power. It was such an important form of distinction that merchants in Rome would actually rent out gold rings to people for special social occasions. The subtle message of wearing a gold ring back then was that, hey, I'm important. I'm somebody special. I'm accomplished. I'm, I'm above other people. And today's really no different if you think about it. Instead of gold rings, there's pressure in our culture, you know, to drive the right car, to have the impressive title, to have the corner office, graduate from the prestigious college, wear designer clothes, live in the affluent neighborhood, and and if we're really being honest with each other this morning, okay, we have a hard time keeping these forms of status to ourselves, right? I mean, social media kind of enables us to broadcast to our followers how we've, how we've made it, how we're good enough. We post pictures on Instagram secretly hoping that friends will envy our life. And there's a meme out there, maybe you've seen it, it goes like this. May one day your life be as awesome as you pretend it is on Facebook. <laughs> but you see, in the kingdom of God, th things are different. Our need for grace levels the playing field. Our, our worth and value as human beings isn't earned. It's not something that we pay for. It's not something that we even pray for. No, Jesus came to do for us what we couldn't do ourselves. The cross paid the debt that we owe. Jesus totally disrupts this drive that we have to be above others. He changes everything. Now think about it like this. Okay, Paul, you probably heard about him. He was an early church leader who wrote many books in the second half of the Bible, referred to as the New Testament. Now, before he became a Christian, he murdered other Christians because he thought they were in the wrong. He thought that they were, you know, a, a disruption to Judaism. And so what did he do? He went out and martyred them. And yet, when he died, okay, he entered heaven to the cheers of those that he killed. <laughs> That's how the gospel works. And yet, simultaneously, that's why the gospel is so offensive at times. And so if it's true, in what ways, in what ways do you tend to see yourself above other people? What do you think that you need to accomplish, own, wear, or join just to fit in and be admired by people around you? Now, I'll just speak for myself. One thing that, that I'm continually learning is that when I look down on others, when I see myself as above others, it says really more about me and what's in my heart than anything else. I, I show favoritism because deep down there's this false belief that I must become someone else in order to be liked, valued, admired, or, or fit in. It's, it's really, if you think about it, it's symptomatic of an identity crisis. 
But here's the thing. The pressure we put on ourselves to impress others, it reveals this disconnect in our faith. Leaning on Jesus means that believing our identity is received, not achieved. Becoming a Christian, following Jesus, leaning on Jesus means believing that our identity, our worth, our value, our significance is received. It's not achieved. It's not something that we work for. And so what would change if you were freed from your need to perform? How would your life look different if you knew that you didn't have to earn acceptance? You didn't need to be good enough? Let's keep going in our text. Look at uh, verse 5. James, James writes, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who, who love him? Now, most scholars would agree that, that James attended Jesus' very first public message referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And... Uh, it was perhaps Jesus' most famous speech, and, and if that's true, James alludes to, in this verse, a line that Jesus uses at the very beginning of that message, and it can be found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Jesus said this, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, th- this was a shocking declaration that, that Jesus made right here. He was, in essence, describing what life is like in the kingdom of God, what the code is like in the kingdom of God. Jesus wasn't saying that, you know, only poor people can be saved. He doesn't show favoritism to the poor. No, instead, Jesus communicates that the only thing we bring to the table when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to following him, is our brokenness. And so to be poor in spirit, what Jesus talks about here, is about being broken over our brokenness. It's about having this awareness of our need for forgiveness. After all, how can you receive forgiveness if you don't know or you don't think that you need to be forgiven? Several years ago when my kids were uh, younger, we decided to go swimming down at the lake one day. And uh, our oldest was about uh, maybe five, four or five years old. And earlier that week, he had just taken his first um, swimming lesson at the YMCA. It was like a 30-minute lesson. And as we headed down to the dock that day, I said, now, JR, understand you're going to have to wear a uh, life jacket before you're allowed to jump in the water. Well, he didn't understand that whatsoever. He's like, Daddy, why in the world do I need a life jacket? I know how to swim. Now, he thought that, you know, going to a 30-minute swim lesson made him Michael Phelps, but he had a little bit too much confidence. And I said, JR, you have to wear a a life jacket. He's like, but daddy, I know how to swim. And so in that moment, I had to get down on his level. And I said, JR, I know you're learning to swim, but you do not know how to swim. You need to wear this life jacket. Now, what I didn't say to him in that moment is, you know what, you're... You're right, you're, you're good, you're a, great, you're a great swimmer, I don't want to offend you, so yeah, you don't need to wear a life jacket, just, just, dive, just dive right in. I didn't say, you know, you, you don't need any help, I didn't tell him, hey, you were born with this innate nature to swim, I didn't tell him that. No, the most dangerous thing that I could have said to him would have been that he didn't need to wear a life jacket, he needed to know that he wasn't fit to swim on his own in order to be safe. And you see, in the same way, Jesus says that entering into the kingdom of God is preceded with an awareness of our depraved condition. 
nobody wants to hear this today, if we're honest. It's not politically correct to say that we're sinners and in need to be saved, but what's best isn't always what's easiest. All of us need a life jacket whether we know it or not. Look at uh, verse 8. James says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convinced by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And so James tells us right here, hey, it's really, it's really easy to love people who don't demand a lot out of you. It's easy to love people who, who are wealthy. But when love is reserved for only people who have status, James says that, that's partial obedience. And selective obedience is still disobedience. Selective obedience is still disobedience. The love that Jesus showed us is the love that he calls us to, to give other people. And after all, love is the path by which people are brought into the kingdom. We don't bring people into the kingdom by arguing with them. People aren't drawn to Jesus because of how you know, right we are. It happens through love. It happens by meeting them right where, they, right where they're at in life. After all, that's what Jesus did for you and me. He, he met you in your depression. He, he met you. When you were laid off, he, he met you in, in rehab. He met you in your divorce. He, he met you in your affair. He met you in your anger. He, he met you when you were hung over. He, he meets us in our mess, okay, and then says, I see you. Now link up your life with me, and I can show you a better way. And James doesn't mean that you have to like everybody. I think sometimes we get confused about that, like to love means to like. Well, not, not, not always, and thank God for that, because there are a lot of people I don't like. But I'm still called to love them. But sometimes the more you dislike somebody, the bigger chance you have to actually love them. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for you and me. The Bible makes it very clear that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't tell us that, you know, once we cleaned our life up, once we started to obey the law, once we started to look like a Christian, it was precisely at that moment that, that Jesus then laid down his life. Now it says that while we were still sinners, Paul would also say that while we were still an enemy of God, it was at that moment that Christ laid down his life for us. And so when you don't like somebody, there's a bigger chance to actually love them because love demands, demands sacrifice. Now in verse 12, James clarifies our motivation by uh, saying this. He says, so speak and so act as those are to be judged under the law of liberty. Now, what in the world is he talking about here? I realize that this law of liberty was completely different, okay, than the law that these Christians were probably familiar with, especially those that had converted from Judaism. Many of them had grown up as a good Jewish boy or girl under the Mosaic law. Now, the Mosaic law was essentially this moral code made up of about 683 do's and don'ts in order to be made right with God. It was the standard of what God expects out of his people, okay, yet it's impossible to actually live out because we're sinners. We fall short. We're, we're people. But Paul would later go on 
to describe in one of his books, the book of Galatians, he would actually refer to the law as a teacher. He said that the law is a, is a teacher. The question is, then what does the law teach us? Well, considering it's, it's totally impossible for us to be saved by living up to the law, okay, it teaches us just how broken we are. It's impossible for us to be saved by living up to the law. Therefore, it teaches us just how, how short we fall. It exposes our sin. It exposes our, our fallen nature. Translation, the law reveals our need to be saved. Because maybe apart from the law, we wouldn't, we wouldn't know just how big of a sinner we are. The law reveals our need to be saved. But again, if we go back to the theme of, of James and what we've been looking at each week in this series, that, that Jesus changes everything, okay, Jesus lived up to the standard of the law for us in our place. Sometimes in church you hear a lot about how Jesus died for us. He died for you. He went to the cross in your place, and that's true. But very seldom do you hear that he didn't just die for you, but he actually lived for you as well. He fulfilled the law on your behalf. That's why he lived a perfect, sinless life. He came to offer us a better way, and the word we use to describe what he offers us is this word grace. Okay, Grace is this undeserved favor of God in our life. And so let me just kind of tie all this together, the law, grace, what Jesus offers us, by putting it like this, that, that grace conceals what the law reveals. Right, grace conceals, grace covers up what the law exposes, what the law reveals. Forgive me if this sounds a little cheesy. I get it. <laughs> Might sound like some cheesy bumper sticker on the back of someone's car, but this is the law of liberty that James mentions. It frees us to come face to face with our sinful nature, with our broken way, and to live, and to live a better way. A few years ago, I, uh, <clears throat> I went on a men's retreat out in Colorado with um, uh, one of Brad and I's uh, mentors. And before you went on this men's retreat, you had, to, you had some assignments that you had to, to do beforehand. <clears throat> and one of those assignments was you had to ask four people in your life, hey, list off some things that you like about me, and then list off, make a separate list for some things that you would change about me. So in other words, what's good about me, what's bad about me? What doesn't need work, what does need work in my life? And to be honest with you, I was not looking forward to uh, reading their responses. And so I sent it out, I got it back, and what surprised me was that all four guys in my life said that I needed to work on the very same thing. They said, Patrick, you've, you've got an anger problem. And that really ticked me off. But you know, when the light of grace shines into our life, our natural response, you know what it is? Is to squint, is to run away, is to deny it, to hide it, to suppress it. But according to James right here, the law of liberty, the law of freedom actually frees us to face our brokenness, to face our sin head on. You know why? Because our sin may describe us, but our sin does not define us. That may be what we did, but it's not who we are. That may be what you struggle with, but that's, that's, not, your, that's not your identity. Sin describes what we do, but it doesn't define who, who we are. And I imagine that with a message like this, some of us realize maybe how short we've fallen when it comes to treating people 
around us who are different. Maybe you have a pattern of belittling the guy in the cubicle beside you. Maybe you think your mom or dad of one of your kid's friends isn't spiritual enough. Perhaps you've been cold towards a neighbor who voted differently than you. It could be that you you name drop in a conversation just to, you know, one-up a colleague. It's important that we learn what it means to live in the law of liberty that James talks about here. Because grace conceals what the law reveals. And what that means is that you are free to love people who disagree with you, or lower than you, or difficult to like. And so as I land the plane, as I bring train into a stop here, when we close out, I want to—I want you to take out your phone, and you probably have the notes application. I want you to pull <clears throat> pull the notes application up, and on a blank on a blank little document there, I want you to answer this question. Okay, who in your life is hard to love that you've failed to love well? Who in your life is hard to like that you failed to love? Maybe that's a better way to ask it. Heck, maybe the person beside you right now. (laughs) I don't know. I want you to write their name down, and I want you to think of a very practical way that you can show them love this week. Maybe just writing them a note of encouragement. Maybe it's offering to buy them lunch when you go out for lunch bring it back to the cubicle. I, I, don't, I don't know what this looks like for you, but how can you fight for them rather than against them? Who is that person? And remember, you're free to do this. This isn't a have to, but it's a, it's a get to. Let me pray for us, and then the band is going to um, close us out, and, and we'll be done here. But again, who is that in your life, and what can you do to show them the love of Christ. Let's pray. God, I'll be honest, one of the hardest things for me to believe in Scripture is that what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, that he, talking about you, Jesus, who knew no sin, became our sin for us. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. And what that means is you aren't surprised by our sin. You aren't disappointed by our brokenness because if your word is true, and I believe it is, that means you actually became our sin for us. And so when we come to a deep understanding of that, maybe, just maybe, that can motivate us a little bit more to love like you, to see the people in our life that may disagree with us, that are different than us, we see is lower than us, we can start to see them the way that you see them. Would you help us to see people around us the way that you see us, the way that you see them, God? Because God, when we fail at this, it's really revealing more of what's going on inside our heart than anything else. And and yet when we fall short, may we rest at night knowing that grace conceals what the law reveals, and that's good news for us. Last thing I want is for us to walk up out of here feeling guilty and feeling guilted into doing something for this person that we wrote down on our phone just now. Because guilt's a poor motivator. It only lasts for so long. But grace, on the other hand, grace is transformative. 
So would you motivate us by your grace to do what you're calling us to do? It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.